welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, although you wouldn't necessarily know that based on the episodes that I've released lately, because lately what I've been doing is releasing episodes that have been all about the early, early, super early offerings from Image Comics. You see, boys and girls, what happened was back in 1992, Image Comics launched with something akin to a bang. And it was a huge media event that, first off, that, ev that uh, Image Comics even existed at all. But once the comics started coming out and, and sales were basically just shooting through the roof, I think it would be fair to say that a lot of attention was being paid to Image and there's, there is an argument that perhaps history has spoken on these early Image comics, and frankly, they're not very good, but me, I've always had a really hard time believing that. I mean, yes, some are better than others, but in the main, I do think that there's a remarkably high degree of quality inherent to these comics. I think that the problem that we have is that these comics go over a lot of modern audiences' heads. Not that they're so intelligent and so fancy-pants and high-minded and all that. It's actually on the contrary. I think people are overthinking it. The fact is, Image Comics, at least to start with, these were comics that wanted to be cool. Now, if they could be cool and well-written at the same time, so much the better. But they wanted to be cool. And... In relation to that, I can only call the early batch of Image Comics an unqualified success. There's just no other way to frame it. And so for that reason, I've actually found myself in this kind of bizarre position of being partly apologist for early Image, and I think as much as anything, a victim of, I don't know, a midlife crisis, perhaps? I mean, I don't know. It's, I'm actually kind of starting to wonder about that, to tell you the truth. But either way, all of this is a really long way of saying that today I'm going to be talking about the Savage Dragon number three. This is basically one of the three Image Comics titles that I settled on uh, uh, for this series that I've, I've basically fallen into calling These Seven Men Are Disrupting the Comics Industry. And so... This is one of the three, the illustrious three. So I guess without further ado, this is the Savage Dragon number three, which the title of which doesn't actually seem to have, it, it, it doesn't actually seem to exist. It's just the Savage Dragon number three, apparently. Creator, writer, penciler, and inker are all Eric Larson. Letterer is Chris Eliopoulos. Colorists are Steve Olive, Ruben Rude, Zan and uh, Zan Mix. Editor is Janny Wong. Story synopsis for this story that doesn't seem to have a title is as follows. Peter Clapton is preparing to make his first public appearance since losing his trademark hair in a fire when he sees a news brief on TV announcing a huge prison break is in progress over at Stronghold Penitentiary. At Stronghold Penitentiary, Dart and Star are up to their eyeballs in escaping convicts as they try like hell to thwart the prison break and get everybody locked back up. 
The tide turns against them, though, and things are looking pretty bad until Mighty Man swoops in and pulls them all out of harm's way. Dart begs Mighty Man to stop the prison break, but his only answer is a sad reply that he just can't do that, after which he flies off. Next day, the dragon visits Dart in the hospital as she recovers from her injuries sustained during the prison fight. She tells the dragon that she saw Mighty Man, but the dragon honestly kind of rudely dismisses her, to tell you the truth. Later, back at the precinct, the dragon overhears Lieutenant Frank Darling having a discussion with some bad guys. The dragon is already suspicious of Frank, and frankly, this phone conversation doesn't really do all that much to change his mind. After that, the dragon is getting caught up on his paperwork when a villain, who I guess is called The Fiend, breaks into the police station, kills one of the cops, and then attacks the dragon. The Fiend is promptly shot and killed before he can cause too much damage, however, after which his form changes from a vicious, kind of demonic-looking monster to Charlie MacArthur from the station's accounting department. Elsewhere, police investigate the dead bodies in the house in DeKalb, Illinois, when one of the cops on the scene makes a startling discovery. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, I gotta tell you, so far, just speaking of the cover here, so far, the only cover in this entire, this title's entire history up to this point that I really like is the Savage Dragon number one. The Savage Dragon number two, it isn't bad, but for me, it's just not as powerful an image as the first issue. But here in the, the third issue, it's... In some ways, it's kind of like two steps forward, one step back. This is an action scene, and I guess on its own merits, it's actually kind of cool. But it doesn't really suggest anything. It doesn't really uh, capture attention. It doesn't demand that you read this. That you read this issue. I mean, the first issue, I think it just looks cool. You know, you, you you've got the dragon. He's glaring at the camera. His uh, his forehead's all fucked up and he's bleeding. He's, his shirt's all, all battle-torn and, and he's looking all pissed off. He's got this giant fucking gun of doom. And he looks like he's seriously ready to open up a serious can of whoop-ass. Because, you know, it's the 90s, so I get to say that right now. He's looking like he's going to open up a serious can of whoop-ass, as they used to say back in the 90s, on somebody. And this uh, the cover for issue number two... Again, it's nowhere near uh, the the uh, cover of the first issue, but it's still kind of interesting. It's uh, it's the dragon. He's not bleeding this time. He's got a cool-looking pair of sunglasses, and he's got another giant frickin' gun of doom. And overall, he's looking mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to him, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are swooping down from overhead, they're about to fuck his day up and fuck it up real bad. And so, just the fact that there's a threat to the dragon on the cover of issue number two, that by itself kind of has a certain attention-capturing quality to it. But then the fact that this is obviously an intercompany crossover, and issue two, no less, that also kind of demands that, that, that you pick up this issue and give it a look. So overall, I don't think that just from an illustrative standpoint that the cover for issue number two is as powerful as issue number one. 
it does it does still have that grab factor to it. The cover for issue number three doesn't even have really much of a of a grab factor. It's got a faceless threat jumping up through the floor. The 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 dragon is surprised by that. He's been caught off guard, but he's small on on uh, on the cover. He doesn't really look all that tough. I mean, he does look kind of imposing. I mean, he's got biceps the size of bowling balls, but there's just not this this grab you by the shirt and demand that you look at this uh, at this comic sort of factor going on with this with this cover. It's just it's not bad. It's just I don't know. I just think it's overall it's not. This is not what I would have wanted for for the cover of issue number three, which nobody asked. And frankly, guys, just. Just to kind of put my my criticisms into, into some kind of perspective here. The third issue of the Savage Dragon sold hundreds of thousands of copies. So what the fuck do I know? I'm just saying that I don't think this is a very impressive cover illustration for the third issue. So take that for whatever you think it's worth. The So that's that. Getting into what Comixology calls page three, but I guess technically is page one. Um, this is basically this is this is Peter Clapton. He's getting ready to to go on to this this uh, daytime talk show, and it's basically once again setting up the fact that Peter Clapton's been out of the public eye for quite some time, and it looks like his hair is basically growing back. This has been sort of an ongoing thing through the previous issues up to this point. Peter Clapton. What happened to him? The fact that nobody's seen him in a while. And so we're starting to get a little bit of elaboration on that. But one of the questions that I've got is that on page three, panel three, I can't really figure out what's going on with Peter's nose here. Is like a chunk missing out of his nose or is there or is this just some hatching, like a hatching artistic effect that's on his nose? Because it really could go either way. The art isn't very clear about that at least if you just look at page at a panel three now panel four you you see a profile shot and so it i guess becomes a little clearer but overall this again this is it's not as clear as it might be and one of the criticisms that i've had about eric larson as an illustrator as we've seen his art in these savage dragon issues is that at least for me as a matter of personal preference he's just not on Mark Silvestri's level or Todd McFarlane's level. You know, I get the fact that Eric Larson, he was a huge name in comics at the time. The fact that he was starting his own comic book, that was a big deal to a shit ton of people, and I get that. It's just that for me, I don't completely understand where the hype with Eric Larson is coming from. So, I don't know. Just take that for whatever you think it's worth. So, anyway, one of the trademarks, not just of Image Comics, but I would say specifically of the Savage Dragon as a title, is lots of action, lots of fights, and while these, while this title doesn't have uh, quite the boobage factor that, say, Wildcats has going for it, or even Cyberforce, you could say, there's not as much boobage and butt cheeks and all that kind of stuff happening in Savage Dragon, but you do still get a little bit with Dart. She's basically cartwheeling around through this uh, through this uh, 
just really scary looking prison break is, I mean, can you just imagine like what this must look like IRL, right? Uh, how scary something like that would really be. And she's flipping around in this just really anatomically improbable superhero outfit. It's, it's kind of sort of like a bikini in a way, maybe. And, and all of that, it's just, there is nothing at all functional or practical about this outfit other than it looks cool. And so that's the way that Larson chooses to draw it. And I, for one, kind of miss when comics were like this. This is this is good stuff. So anyway, uh, page five, again, Comixology's page five. I have no idea if I doubt that actually that this is the official page five, but Comixology's page five. Uh, the fight continues. It's dark. She's all on her own. And honestly, she's starting to lose this fight. It's really as simple as that. And one of the things that we've seen a lot in, in a lot of the, the criticism of comics, especially in the last 10 or so years, is this really insipid idea introduced by Gail Simone of violence against women, where apparently it's okay for male characters to be violent towards other male characters it's okay for female characters to be violent towards male characters, but it is not okay for male characters to be violent against female characters, even if the male character who is doing the violence is clearly a villain, even if the character against whom the violence is being done is clearly the victim, even if this is uh, e even if this violence that's being done by a man against a woman is clearly vilified in the story itself, and nobody is saying that this is a good thing. It's like it just doesn't seem to matter. Context is completely irrelevant here. It's violence against women and women in refrigerators, and so it's automatically bad. And so here on page five, when somebody knocks Dart in the middle of next week, and, you know, she's, I mean, she's fucked up. I mean, this this hurts. There's blood flying all over the place. And you can tell she really got her bell rung by that. She's down, and at least for the moment, she's down for the count. Now, obviously, she swings back into action in just a few pages, but at least for right now, here on Comixology's page five and then getting into page six, she's hurt bad. And I can only imagine what the reaction to this would be these days w with the culture being the way that it is. I mean, just think back to what happened when there was a, as far as I know, this, this cover was eventually canceled, but there was a cover of a Batgirl comic. She's standing next to the Joker looking scared out of her mind. And he's holding her mouth open in imitation of a smile. It's like a fake smile that he's giving her. And that's it. He's not really inflicting harm upon her. He's just forcing her to smile. And she's clearly scared out of her mind. And it's like, that was scandalous all by itself. So what would happen if you did something like this in a comic these days? And I honestly don't know the answer to that. So anyway, and who's to say what might have happened next, except on Comixology's page seven, Star swings to the rescue and he basically saves... Well, I don't know if he... Well, I guess he saves Dart, but he certainly gives her a respite. Certainly enough time to catch her breath so that she can swing back into action here. Now, Star is a character that was introduced back in issue number two. And I made a specific point of not really getting too much into that. It's just, I don't really care very much about... I mean, look, who knows? Maybe someday I'll give a shit about Star. 
It's just that right now, as I'm rereading these comics and talking about them on this podcast, I just don't really care to talk about this character and goings on with him unless he's a guest star in the main dragon story. And so if those conditions are not met, I just don't really feel like podcasting about him, to tell you the truth. So, anyways, more violence against women. This is on page... Actually, you know what? I skipped page eight. My bad. Uh, page eight, uh, you, you've got Dart and Star. They're fighting these escaped convicts. And at least for a moment, it looks like they're actually making some kind of headway. And one of the things that I sort of like about superhero comics, especially in this vintage is you would get banter between heroes as they beat the shit out of the bad guys. You would get banter between hero and villain as the bad guys get the shit beaten out of them. And it's just good stuff. It's just, I mean, I don't know as I'd go so far as to call it lighthearted because, I mean, let's face it, these people, some of these bad guys are threatening murder. So there's really nothing cutesy about that. But it's like at the same time, Yes, there there is the peril of this story. The story has stakes to it. But at the end of the day, we know that at least for this issue, I mean, going forward, who knows, but at least for this issue, Dart and Star are going to live to fight another day. So no matter how grim their circumstances may be, no matter how uh, perilous the the, uh, situations in which they find themselves might become, you know that, yeah, they may take their their hits, they're still going to survive at least into next month's issue. Or the next issue, because saying next month's issue can be kind of dicey with Image at this stage in the game, but you get the idea. So, anyway. And indeed, things do get pretty pretty perilous because Dart takes a bullet straight to the, uh, uh, to the shoulder. Uh, this is on uh, page 9, Comixology's page 9. And uh, it, basically, the bullet gl- goes clean through her shoulder. Again, there's more blood. I can only imagine how much how much this has just got to hurt like a bastard to get shot in the shoulder like that. And then on top of that, in panel three, she gets smashed upside the head again. And it's looking like once again, not a, uh, you know, Dart is in is in danger. Like she's about to get taken down permanently. But now, Star, he's getting overwhelmed as well, and it doesn't look like he's going to be in any position to help her when... Da-da-da-da! On page 10, you've got Mighty Man swooping to the rescue. And at this point, both Dart and Star are covered in their own blood, and they're just in really bad shape. They're pretty fucked up. Now, guys, it's been since forever and a day since... I've read all of these old Savage Dragon issues, so I'm going to be completely honest here and say I haven't really retained a whole lot about Mighty Man and uh, the story with him. I mean, I do know his secret identity, which is one of the reasons why I've been so coy about that up to this point, but uh, nevertheless, I don't really, I haven't really retained a whole lot of Mighty Man. My sense, not and this is not just because of uh, of the uh, symbol on his chest, although that helps. But my sense of Mighty Man is that he's not really the Dragon Universe's Superman. He's actually the Dragon Universe's Captain Marvel. You understand? Yes, you've got the symbol on his chest, that kind of Captain Marvel-esque... Uh, lightning bolt there's that 
But even his cape, I mean, yeah, there's a kind of Doctor Strange quality to it, but the red pipe, or not the red, the yellow piping on his cape, it actually just kind of makes me, it's reminiscent of Captain Marvel's yellow piping on his cape. Now, yes, his cape is white, whereas Mighty Man's cape is red, but still, they've both got the yellow piping on there, and that just, well, makes me wonder. So, anyway, my memory of Mighty Man, such as it is, is this actually a pretty cool character, but I want to be honest with you, I haven't really retained very much else besides that, but I do think it does become apparent in some later issue which character, whether it's Captain Marvel or whether it's Superman, which character Mighty Man is homaging, but uh, it's of the two, I, I just, I don't remember, don't remember which one it is, but we do get a little bit of intrigue with Mighty Man on uh, on page 11 in as much as he's clearly ridiculously powerful he's got the ability to fly he's obviously got some kind of super strength one gathers he's got some kind of invulnerability so all in all he's just about the guy that you'd want to send into action to put a stop to this prison break and get everyone locked back up which makes it all the more surprising when he says I can't do that Sorry! And then he just swoops off. Like, what the fuck is that about? And I honestly don't remember what that what, what that's all about. I do remember it comes up again, like, maybe it's issue number five or number six. I know that we, we circle back to that before too long. This isn't one of those subplots that we have to wait like a year and a half before it gets... And I mean, like, well, I, again, I can't say a year and a half, like 18 issues of the Savage Dragon before we finally start getting some answers. My memory of it, and I could be completely wrong, but my memory of it is that we get answers on this actually remarkably quickly. So, now whether or not that's a good thing, I mean, who knows, but, you know, your actual mileage may vary, but anyway. So, getting into page 13, one of the things that I sort of like about the Savage Dragon comic is the fact that these characters... They tend to have really organic conflicts with one another. Now, I'm going off memory here, but the way I remember it, Eric Larson didn't really have a whole lot of experience writing at, at the time that he started in on the Savage Dragon. And he and yet he does seem to be one of the better image rookie writers. As compared to I mean, Jim Lee, I don't know if he's ever written something all by himself. My memory of it is he always had help, whether it was Brandon Choi or just somebody else. He's, I don't think he's ever written, again, could be wrong, but I don't think he's ever been the sole writer of something. But Todd McFarlane had a pretty steep learning curve, some of which uh, it, it actually began on adjectiveless Spider-Man. But even getting into Spawn, I mean, Todd McFarlane, he really did have to grow and learn and experiment, try this, try that, you know? It really was a lot of trial and error that was going on with Todd McFarlane, the writer, before I before I think you could say he was really good at it, you know? Whereas Eric Larson, he seemed to have a stronger command of writing virtually from the start. So, and a good example of that, you know, Prosecution's Exhibit A is actually right here on Comixology's page 13, where he's he's talking to Dart, and 
The thing that this scene needs to set down is the fact, number one, that the Savage uh, Dragon title is now bringing the dragon back to Chicago. He's back in town now. So Dragon's back. And that's that's really the, the purpose of this page. And really, I would say the surrounding pages. But specifically on this page, that... Mighty Man has been missing, and the dragon does not believe Dart when she says that she saw him. And it kind of goes to character that you've got the you've got the dragon, he's a little bit of an alpha male, and you've got Dart, who's a little bit of an alpha female, and they're not exactly getting along with each other straight out of the gate. They they need to kind of get the hang of each other for a while. And I and the reason I'm kind of being a pain in the ass about this is to say that I think it it's indicative of the fact that Larson had his thinking cap on when he realized that these two characters that he created would logically get off on the wrong foot with with each other. Now, they'd eventually get past it. This is not going to define their relationship, but at least to start with, this is how things need to begin. Now, like I say, they could they could improve in the future, or they could, if anything, get worse in the future. But at least to start with, it's very logical, it's very reasonable within the characters that have been set up in the two issues previous. These two are not going to be members of each other's fan club, put it that way. At least not to start with. So, I think it's kind of it's smart that Larson noticed that, picked up on that. And he doesn't overdo it, but he, you do get enough of it right here on page 13 that the message, uh, he, he does get the message across, put it that way. So, anyway. Moving right along, we get another fight scene because, again, the calling card of the Savage Dragon title is action and fights and stuff. The sex appeal, I mean, yeah, again, you get bits of that periodically, but the franchise of the Savage Dragon is lots of action, lots of fights, lots of buildings falling over and shit blowing up and people crashing through walls and guns getting fired off and and all of that stuff. This is a very high-octane, high-action, high-energy comic. And so, of course, we need another fight scene. And indeed, we get one. This is on page 17. The Basically, The Fiend, because I don't know what else to call him, the fiend uh, crashes through a wall, and without missing a beat, the dragon just hauls off and decks the guy. He just smashes him right in the fucking face. And you can see it. This is right here on page 18, panel 1. He's knocking teeth right out of the guy's head. Uh, the dragon is knocking teeth right out of the fiend's head. And that was the instant the guy crashed through the wall. So that's how ready for action the dragon is. So the fiend, he's on the ground. And some cops uh, rush up. And panel two, again, I don't think this is a very well-constructed panel. Uh, the dragon's leg is blocking out uh, the cop that's pointing a gun at the fiend. And so you miss... It's kind of hard to figure out what you're even looking at at first. So in panel three, the fiend like punches right through that cop's chest. And then shoots the dragon with his big energy fire burst looking thing sends the dragon flying across the room and so it looks like the fight's about to resume 
the the fiend leaps across the room when the other cops just basically just blow him away. The fiend dies, his body twists and it morphs. And the the other cops gather around, they're like, holy shit, that's Charlie MacArthur from accounting. Some kind of demon took over his body. And one of the cops asks the most obvious question, what's going on around here? So what do you want to bet we're going to get elaboration on that in some future issue? I'm thinking it's pretty good. So anyway, elsewhere, this issue ends... I don't know if this is an abrupt ending or just a, or if this is meant to be a cliffhanger or or what, but we get the we get the cops, they're in DeKalb, Illinois, that they're at the house with the dead bodies in it. One of them opens the door to the stairs where we've been uh hearing that voice calling out for help in previous issues. Uh the cop opens the door, whatever he sees scares the holy shit out of the guy because all he says is, "Oh my god." So whatever, I mean, I know what he's looking at, don't get me wrong, but whatever he's looking at is pretty shocking. And indeed, it is pretty shocking, but I don't want to spoil too much ahead here. Now, as with uh, Savage Dragon number two, there is a backup story in this issue. This one's about Mighty Man. So the last one was about Star. This one's about Mighty Man. And being as this isn't the main dragon story, I don't have much interest in getting into that right now. I don't know, maybe another time. I doubt it, frankly, but you, you never know. Maybe another time. But uh, anyway, there is a... Uh, the the theory, the big brain theory that I submitted in, in my last episode, the one about issue number two, is that basically these backup stories were meant, number one, to do some world building and expand on the cast of characters people that we're going to be seeing more of in the in the issues to come. But also, it was to kind of cut Larson a little bit of a break, give him fewer pages to write, fewer pages to draw, so that he'd have more time to handle the business side of running his company. So that's my theory. I don't know if that's true, but I think there's some logic to it. So anyway, and... So without getting into the blood and guts of the Mighty Man backup story, that's pretty much it for the Savage Dragon number three. So that's that. Now, as to next week, obviously I'm going to be wrapping up the Savage Dragon thing with the Savage Dragon number four. So honestly, it's been quite a while since I've read that. I mean, I did a big reread a few weeks ago, but the the issues that really stood out to me were issues number one and number three. Numbers two and four, I honestly, I had to reread them before uh, doing this or reread at least issue number two before doing the show. So I don't know. I'm, we're we're going to we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. But uh, I remember enjoying it. So I guess we'll see. So that's that stuff. Now, as to feedback. All right, so uh, let's see, feedback. Okay, I got something here. Uh, This is uh, like so much of the feedback that I've been going through lately. This is uh, kind of an oldie by this point, but it, you know, we do, we do really need to get down to business here and start getting caught up a little bit more. So this was, this, this email is dated April the 16th, 2015. 
Sent in by my old friend, Fanboyimus Prime, subject line says, The Big Book Report on Vice. And Prime, uh, Prime has this to say, Hey Magnus, from what I can gather on the aftermath of Seduction of the Innocent in hearings afterward was, <clears throat> The Comics Code Authority was annoying and a pain in the ass to deal with. From the words of Jack Kirby, who was there, <clears throat> now, Prime, uh, I'm going to put your email on pause here and say, yes, I can imagine. Well, actually, first off, I don't completely remember where this is coming from exactly, because obviously you sent this in back in 2015. And so, number one, I guess, really, I apologize for how long it's taken uh, for me to get to this. But hopefully by now I've demonstrated that I'm serious about getting caught up on feedback. So there's that. Uh, so the other thing, though, is, like I say, I don't completely remember where this is coming from. I've got kind of a dim, hazy memory of something about the comics code or Seduction of the Innocent or something like that in the uh, big book of Vice episode that I did with Chris Honeywell ages and ages and ages ago. So I'm content to basically assume that there's that there had to there had to have been some kind of discussion going on there that prompted all this but one of the th prime it's the weirdest thing you know like memory is such a subjective thing you know it's amazing what you can forget about or for that matter what you can choose to remember you know one of the things that i just sort of forgot about was that sort of it was kind of a legendary tirade that Frank Miller went on at, it was either like some kind of Diamond Distributors Summit, or maybe it was Capital City Summit. Like, this is going a pretty long way back now, something like 1994, 95, you know, in through there. And Miller had quite a lot to say about the comic book industry of that time. He my memory of it is he talked quite a lot about Jack Kirby, but really he called out on the carpet Marvel comics and just basically burned them in fucking effigy. That's the way I remember it. I mean, he pretty much went ham on Marvel comics and pretty much called them thieves. As I recall, that's, that's the way that I remember it. Now he went on to say that, it, look, DC and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. This isn't, this isn't, you know, verbatim or anything like that. But, you know, don't think that, you know, DC was so innocent either. And uh, he basically developed this this point that the Comics Code Authority, just to kind of tie it in with what you're saying here, that the Comics Code Authority, what it was really designed to do was put EC Comics out of business. Everything else is kind of beside the point. Yeah, Seduction of the Innocent came out. Yeah, Hearings were held in Congress on it, et cetera, et cetera. And the comic book industry establishment of that time, which is to say, I guess, I guess back then DC, I think they were known, they, they were still known as NPP. So, but whatever, DC and Marvel more or less colluded to create the Comics Code Authority with the implicit purpose because I don't think anyone ever came right out and said it but 
<clears throat> with the implicit purpose of shutting EC Comics down for good. And in that purpose, they were a success. You know, EC Comics, my memory of it, uh, or not my memory, because it's not like I was there, but my understanding is that what's his name? Uh, Bill Gaines. Basically, he tried to soldier on uh, EC Comics. They limped on for a little while, but just in the end, the stories that they were telling were so neutered by the Comics Code Authority that they eventually just said, fuck it, we're out. And so that was the end of EC Comics. Now, I don't think I've ever talked about EC Comics uh, on any of my episodes. And that's a shame because that's really in spite of my intentions. When I, uh, Prime, I, I can't remember if I've, if this has ever popped up in, in, in an episode before. So it, well, I think maybe it has, but whatever, forgive me. Before I launched Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, I came up with this gigantic fucking mega list, all right? All these different things that I wanted to talk about, like the Flash, Terminal Velocity storyline, uh, the 2003 Daredevil movie, um, let me think, uh, the the Matrix sequels, uh, uh, Doom, the uh, Doomsday storyline, Superman comics, uh, the night Gwen Stacy died, just on and on and on, all these different things that I that I wanted to talk about during the run of my show. A lot of them I have talked about. A lot of them I have not talked about. One of the things that's been on that's been on this list for years and years and years has been something to do with EC Comics because I grew up obviously long after EC Comics had called it a day. And so I just sort of grew up, I guess, in among fans of this sort of thing, I, I sort of grew up in EC Comics's legend. Does that make sense? Uh, basically, the the shadow of EC Comics it went pretty fucking long. I mean, as far as I know, there are people who are not just fans of EC Comics, but are just completely fucking bonkers about EC Comics to this day. And I mean the original Golden Age, like 40s and 50s EC Comics, guys. That that stuff, it, it had fans just for decades and decades and decades afterwards. And so for those reasons, I thought, you know, if people are talking this much trash about just how fucking amazing EC Comics is, then I should at least dip a toe into that. And did. And I, Prime, I got to tell you, I fell in love with EC Comics myself. I could totally see the appeal of those comics, those kind of horror comics or crime noir type comics. Didn't take a whole lot of imagination to, to see what the appeal of those comics would have been to kids that were growing up in, uh, in the 40s and 50s. And I can absolutely see where this stuff is an existential fucking threat to, to well, specifically DC Comics, because I think Timely Comics, I think Timely was around, but Marvel, as we know it, obviously that was still a few years off. I think Timely was still published. I could be wrong on that, but whatever. <clears throat> so maybe I guess it's inaccurate to say that Marvel and DC colluded on creating the Comics Code Authority and all that. But, I mean, whatever. It's not like... The 
entity that would go on to become Marvel Comics was, again, I swear to think this that it was around and it was publishing comics back in the 50s. Because I'm not really a Marvel guy, Prime, so forgive me. I mean, I I think they were around, but I, I don't know. And so... I don't know if if what I said a second ago about, you know, collusion, if that's necessarily the the most accurate way to put it. But the point is nobody's hands are clean on this is basically the way that Frank Miller described it in that legendary, you know, riot act reading, building, burning, pillaging uh, speech he gave, that uh, keynote speech he gave at some kind of capital city distribution summit thingy back in the 90s. It's fucking legendary. And you know, at some point, I don't know if I'm going to do an episode specifically about that, but I do know that it that I at least want to talk about it, at least in passing, if nothing else, more than what I'm doing here. So in passing, but to maybe a little bit greater depth than than I can afford to go into with it here. Suffice it to say, he made it sound like the 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 unstated objective of the Comics Code Authority was basically putting EC Comics out of business. That's pretty much what it came down to. And so for that reason, I, I kind of take considerable wicked delight. There's a lot of schadenfreude going on here where there were instances where the Comics Code would kind of fuck DC and Marvel at different times. And it's like, hey guys, you called down the thunder. I mean, this is what you wanted. Well, here you go. And the same thing that'll make you laugh, will make you cry. There have been times when, or there were times back when the comics code was a thing. There were times when DC basically had, the comics code authority, basically they were on DC's nuts or they were on Marvel's nuts or, or whoever's nuts. And I can absolutely see where, I, just some of the arbitrary rules of the comics code. You can't have Wolfman on the cover, which Marv Wolfman said that made it hard for him to get cover credit for a very long time. I mean, it's kind of funny that Wolfman and the guy, the comic book writer, Marv Wolfman. Like I say, just these weird unintended consequences, you know, that it can happen like, that way sometimes. And like I say, at least for me, there's a certain amount of schadenfreude that goes into that where it's like, guys, if you had just left well enough alone back in the 50s, you wouldn't be having this problem right now. So fuck you, pretty much. So anyway, getting back into Prime's email, he writes, X-Force number 116 being when the Comics Code Authority came crashing down. And actually, I'm putting the email back on pause to say, yeah, you know, Prime, I mean, uh, I knew that it had happened at some point or another, like in the early to mid 2000s. I swear to think it was early 2000s. And so X-Force number 116, Prime, don't take this the wrong way, but it's when, like anytime somebody mentions X-Force to me, the first thing I think of is Rob Liefeld. And to a lesser degree, anytime somebody mentions Rob Liefeld, what I think of is X-Force. I mean, like, to me, the two are sort of one in, in, in some ways. And so imagine my surprise. You know, I actually looked it up. 
And or actually, I'm going to circle back to that. But the point is, I knew that it happened, but I didn't know, at least for X-Force's participation, that's when the the comics code basically started getting ignored. And I think these days it's completely defunct. I don't think even Archie Comics uh, adheres to the comics code anymore. So that's that, I suppose. Now, getting back into Prime's email, he says, I really would like you to look into that run on X-Force, which includes Ecstatics, as I enjoyed it and it certainly was interesting. When celebrities, private military contractors, and superheroes collide, it certainly is different from the rest of the X-Universe, and I probably have suggested it before. Now, Prime, I'm going to be completely honest with you. When it comes to basically anything to do with the X-Men or just the X-Corner of the Marvel Universe, the mutant corner of the Marvel Universe, really, it's just about all I can say grace over just to get through some X-Men comics, you know, Uncanny X-Men or New X-Men or, or, or whatever, or... The Joss Whedon run, I think, what was that? The it was was it Sensational X Men or Astonishing X Men? Maybe it was something like that. It was, it, it was along those lines. It's really all I can say grace over just to get through that stuff. All right, so just I, I want to set your expectation on that. Now, having said all of that, I don't know, I don't remember if you've ever mentioned this before, but. I just took a glance at uh, X-Force number 116 in the Marvel app before beginning recording on this, and it looks like, at least specifically, X-Force number 116 was written by Fabian Nicieza, who, again, don't mistake me for some kind of big X-Men expert, but he is... He's one of the heavies, you know, as far as X-Men writer. I mean, I don't think anyone necessarily puts him on, say, Chris Claremont's level. But Nicieza, I mean, he he made, he definitely made his mark on X-Men. I mean, he's definitely somebody to respect. And then the art is being done by Mike Allred. And I loves me some Mike Allred. I'm, I, You know, Madman is another one of those comics that I've been meaning to talk about on this show. And... And will. I, I, I don't know when, but at some point I do want to tackle Madman. So just to kind of sum it all up, you've got Fabian Nicieza, he's writing it. Mike Allred, he's drawing it. And the cover of X-Force number 116, it looked kind of Jack Kirby-ish or maybe Steve Ditko-ish. Like kind of some parts Kirby, some parts Ditko, some parts... I don't, something else, a little bit of George Perez, maybe. And it just looked really fucking cool. The other thing that I like about it is it, I couldn't tell you anything about this comic book. I couldn't tell you anything about these characters, this run on the comic or anything. I couldn't tell you anything. I'm not the guy for that. But it looked like they've got matching uniforms and... Or not, not matching uniforms, but they're... There are sort of common design elements across all of the characters' outfits that they're clearly all part of the same team. And I must tell you, Prime, that it, it basically looks like, at, at the very least, specifically that issue, it looks like it's kind of the perfect storm of interesting factors where, for whatever reason, this this was the issue where... 
uh, the Comics Code Authority went away. It's written by uh, Fabian Nicieza. It was drawn by Mike Allred. The characters look kind of interesting. They've got kind of similar outfits and everything, kind of similar uniforms. And all of this kind of makes me think, i not promising anything, but you know what? Maybe I should at least take a take a glance at specifically that issue, specifically at X-Force number 116, and just kind of get right up and just give you my, my honest opinion about it. And so, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to promise that I'm going to tackle that entire run. And I'm not necessarily promising even that I'm going to talk about specifically X-Force number 116. But that particular issue definitely looks interesting. So I've put it on my list. I'm not making any promises. But I am going to sit here and tell you that I think that actually sounds kind of interesting. And honestly, I don't really know a whole lot about X-Force. Like, I know that Rob Liefeld drew it. Like, that's really where he made his bones. He drew X-Force, and that's really what made him into a superstar. But really, too much else apart from that, I just don't know. I don't really know anything about X-Force. So maybe this is a, a, a good run to do a deep dive into, at the very least, to figure out what the hullabaloo with this team is all about. So anyway, so X-Force number 116, that's on my list. And at some point, I'm going to make a good faith effort to get around to that just because it looks so interesting, you know, for all the reasons that I've, that I've just said. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping, Prime, because I know that you've made a series of recommendations to me over the years, some of which I've acted upon, but honestly, some of which I haven't. I think at the very least I should uh, throw you a line on, uh, on this one. So I put it on my list, and I'm definitely going to try to get to it, all right? So... Uh, Hopefully, hopefully that's okay. So, Prime goes on to say, Sorry not much more on the other subjects of the episode, but it really was uh, all covered by you guys. Signed, Fanboy Emma's Prime. And Prime, don't worry about that. That's that's just fine. I'm just glad that, uh, you, that, that you listen to the show, that you send me email and all this, and very happy about that. So, thank you. No need for uh, apologies or anything like that. Just happy to hear from you, man. So, anyway, that... I think is uh, gonna pretty much do it for feedback. Now, getting into next week, I'm obviously gonna be talking about Savage Dragon number four, but that's for next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye everybody, I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus 
Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus... Media Enterprises Limited Production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, 
a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I release new episodes every Tuesday, and sometimes those episodes are all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in history. Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to themes, story arcs, and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis of each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville. A feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality and see for yourself why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville. A feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Only at TwoTrueFreaks.com. <laughs>